step right up, it's nailed. We have something very different and special this time, right, Jess? Right, Blake. <laughs> Thank you. So I guess if you saw the title of this episode, uh, it's not a prank. No, it's not April Fool's. Check your it's calendar, not. folks. Check your calendars. It really did happen, and we really did interview Charlie Clauser, and we're not going to belabor it and take a long time to get into it. Because I hate when podcasts do that and make you wait forever. I love it. I love suspense. (laughs) We don't want to keep you in suspense. Uh, We want to get to the interview. But I don't don't even know what to say about it. It was an awesome experience. and It's surreal. Very surreal. And And I can't believe it actually was real. (laughs) Same. Um, But he is maybe the world's nicest guy. We had one of the Nine Inch Nails on the show. I don't know what to say. My mind is reeling still. And it's been really hard to sit on this secret. Yeah, it really has. That's been tough. Yeah. But yeah, Charlie uh, was an excellent storyteller. Easy to talk to. Yep. Um, and just full of all kinds of information. Full of wisdom. That's right. Information about the fragile, maybe. Maybe. And how it was made. And information about he's, you know, he's hot off the Cleveland reunion show. Mm-hmm. So we get to hear about that. Mm -hmm. We get to hear a lot about synthesizers and theremins, but we should just let him tell it. Definitely. And before we go, we didn't have all the time in the world that we wanted to to record this. So um, keep your ears peeled. Keep your ears peeled. (laughs) Charlie may be coming back. Yeah. No, Uh, I'm not making any promises. Yeah. No no promises. We don't want to guarantee people that, but it could happen. Weirder things have happened. Weirder things have happened. I mean, he came up. He came on nail, for God's sake. <laughs> and um, also just a big thank you to Christopher G. Brown, the intern, for uh, getting this set up. He made it happen. Definitely. So you can thank him, mm-hmm. the intern. And also thank you again to Charlie for yep. dropping by and chatting with us. It was great. Yeah. Should we just let him hear it? Let him hear uh, it. So we, uh, we kind of come in mid-conversation a little bit. We, we, ch- we were chatting it up. Mm-hmm. So we'll drop you right into it. Get cozy. Get cozy with Charlie and us. I hope <laughs> I hope you It's just cold, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, it's cold. Time it's to get cozy. Cold time of year. I hope yeah. you liked what we I hope you liked our convo. All right. Peace. Bye. Charlie Clauser, thanks obviously so much for joining us on Nailed. Uh, we didn't really think this would happen uh, anytime soon, but our intern, who we call our intern, made it happen. So thank you <laughs> and welcome. Glad to be here. Glad glad to be a part of it. Thanks for being generous with your time. Um, you were talking about the first synth you ever had that you sawed in half so you wouldn't sell. Um, you were saying that was used on like downward spiral remixes in the nineties. Yeah, I I had this the very first two synths i ever got was a little arp solus which was like a cheap monophonic synth the the low cost version of the odyssey and uh a korg ms20 and in the early 90s you know i bought these things for 200 bucks and 400 bucks out of classified ads in the back of the village voice when i lived in new york and in the early 90s before i got involved with with nails and and was you know living hand to mouth, I, on purpose, kind of disabled them and destroyed their resale value by taking the, the 
electronics out of the ARP Solus and throwing away the enclosure and the keyboard yeah. and then taking the MS-20 and sawing the keyboard off and with my rudimentary carpentry skills, kind of building this Frankenstein box that held both of them together. And I figured that was one way I could guarantee that I would never, in a moment of uh, financial desperation, uh, sell those things. And so, I, and I still have them both. They're a bit uh, ratty and crusty, but they're still kicking around here somewhere in the room. Yeah, the uh, like that remix stuff sounds really slick, like almost ahead of its time for mid '90s. I, I wouldn't have guessed that that's that's what it was, and that you were like wanting for gear in those days. Well, I. I actually was just going through boxes of old DAT tapes that contained all the mixes of those remixes and transferring all that stuff into the computer for long-term archiving. And I was, I have to say, I was kind of nodding my head there and I was impressed with the audio quality considering the crude level of equipment at, of the day. And, you know, I had those two monophonic synths, which actually I never used either one of them for a synth sound. I only ran other sounds through their filters. Okay. So, for instance, uh, uh, there was a couple remixes I did for the band Prong that had these sort of dirty little sounds that were kind of like, and that was mm -hmm. just a chunk of the guitar track through the external audio input and the filter on either the ARP Solus or the MS-20. And then using the triggering on the on the keyboard using a midi converter and the position on the keyboard would control the filter cutoff so as you would play lower notes they would be more muted and go Ur. and if you'd play higher on the keyboard it would trigger the filter more open so you get eh. and so you could play a little pattern on the keyboard and create those interesting filter triggered filter patterns and i, I did that a lot on remixes because that was one of the few interesting sounds i could make with my tiny little setup in those days yeah, and they they sounded awesome, and you know I wouldn't have guessed that. Um, but I promised Jess it wouldn't be all about gear because <laughs> uh, her eyes might glaze over. But she did well, have mine, mine might too. <laughs> <laughs> um, she had a good idea for a question um, about like first getting into. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, what made you want to buy a synthesizer? Like, what was was there a certain type of music you liked or just wanted to you were really into like tech side of things like what exactly was it it was definitely from hearing sounds that i didn't know how they were made on various records and you know the obvious candidates would be bands that i listened to like Kraftwerk or devo or talking heads but an even earlier there was kind of two sonic moments from more dad rock kind of stuff that predates that explosion of new wave and interesting music in the 80s and late 70s um and in the one of them is in the pink floyd song sheep where the last syllable of the verse vocals it's as roger sustains his voice it kind of crossfades to a synth sound that is tweak to sound to be in the same pitch and the same octave and with the same tonality as his voice and then as the sound as his sustaining the last word of the of the verse it morphs into a synthesizer Now, 
Now, it's just a simple crossfade, you know, fading out the vocal and fading up the synthesizer. Mm -hmm. And then as the synth tone kind of takes over, they bring in some LFO modulation and you hear that. I'll do an imitation of it where he goes, you know, away. And I remember hearing <laughs> that and, and thinking that's freaking sonic magic and I want to know how to do that. And that's what I, I don't care that all the other sounds in a Pink Floyd record are just sort of normal. You know, they're organs and drums and guitars and they're not far out. But that one thing sort of jumped out of the speakers at me and I would, you know, with my turntable, I'd repeat that, that piece over and over again just because I loved that otherworldly quality that it had. And another a similar thing is in the, the movie of the Led Zeppelin concerts called The Song Remains the Same, where Jimmy play, Page plays with a theremin. Mm. And he's got a, it's going through a tape echo or an echo unit of some kind. And there's this sort of, you know, the section in the song that I, I always referred to those kind of solos as drug solos. Because <laughs> it's just like, it just sounds like a drug trip freak out noise. And he's making these far out space noises. <laughs> And in the movie, you can see what he's doing, and you can see his hand moving against the antennas for the theremin. And so your brain can kind of put together what's happening, more or less, but it still was just this, it wasn't a guitar, it wasn't an organ or an electric piano, it was some otherworldly drug sound. And yep. I just remember seeing that, you know, I must have been, I don't know, 13 years old or something when I saw that movie, and thinking that's just the that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. So those kind of moments predated the massive onrush of interesting sounds that was like an avalanche in the late 70s. You know, I remember seeing, uh, in there was one year, I think it was 1977, when on Saturday Night Live, because I, I was growing up in Vermont. I was like on a dirt road where we got three channels of TV, you know. No MTV, no internet, no nothing. No exposure to interesting music i didn't have any older brothers or older cousins that could turn me on to cool badass music i had to find it like on the radio or by watching saturday night live and seeing who was playing this week and in one year i think it was 77 uh devo b-52s and talking heads all played on saturday night live Whoa. And of course, Devo, it was, it's that legendary performance where they're wearing the yellow jumpsuits mm -hmm. and they play Jocko Homo and Satisfaction. And it was just like, what the fuck did I just see? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Mother's Ball had fuzz pedals duct taped to his guitar and it was just this outer space concept. And of course, there's not a lot, it's not synthesizer music. But there was unusual tones and textures and a smattering of these weird approaches to musical sound design and talking heads likewise in that early incarnation off their first album it wasn't very synth heavy but it was just an unusual approach to the same old four instruments that every other rock band had used mm -hmm. and of course b-52s in a similar fashion there was no you know, as far out as they got in terms of instruments was a Farfisa organ or something, or mm -hmm. Fred Schneider with his little toy walkie-talkie on on Rock Lobster where he would use the beeper on this walkie-talkie and go, bam, bam, 
and play this little solo. And I thought, you know, those kind of moments were the next links in the chain. And then once I got to college and discovered all the factory records, stuff like, you know, Joy Division and New Order and mm -hmm. A Certain Ratio and bands that were, were harder to find when you live on a dirt road in Vermont. Yeah. But that had more interesting use of synthesizers and stuff. Then, like, the floodgates were kind of open. <laughs> I think theremin is a great transition because we really wanted to ask about theremin. Um, mm -hmm. And this kind of leads into the whole uh, Cleveland mind-blowing thing, which, <laughs> like... We're we're still unsure what we saw, and you're you're probably still reeling from it, I imagine. But just it, to, well, yeah. Well, I want to talk about the whole thing, but like you're up there with the, the theremin, and I wanted to know ex what exactly were you doing up there? <laughs> Was it just theremin? Were you just there to play theremin? No, I I played a few. You know, Al uh, Alessandro Cortini uh, relinquished a few keyboard parts uh, that he normally would play. Um, that he kind of said, hey, whatever you want, you know, and all credit to Alessandro. He's like, look, I don't, I'll just stand here. It's fine. You can play any parts that yeah. you remember how to play and that you feel like playing. So I played, you know, some of the parts on Sin, uh, the keyboard solo on Gave Up, and, you know, some of the things that I used to play, live triggering samples on the keyboard are now being done by Atticus. So there was, mm. I didn't play everything that I used to play on all of those songs. And, you know, I always had, when Trent had first suggested using a theremin back in 97 or 95, whenever it was, yeah. I, I kind of said, are you sure, man? Because it's a little theremin goes a long way. And he's yeah. like, no, nah, bring that thing out. You know, and so we picked a few songs that it would work on in the touring for The Fragile. And, uh, then when it came time to do this Cleveland thing, he said, "Yeah, break, break it out, man." And just, <laughs> and again, I said, "Look, it's uh, you know, a little, a little goes a long way. I don't want to like be slathering that stuff all over the place." But to everyone's credit, the mixers kept it kind of tucked away in the background, and it had a ton of effects yeah. on it, a lot of distortion and echo. So it was just, it, I could do my little melodic sweeps and and hit a few notes, but it wasn't this overriding thing right. that hopefully bother didn't bother people too much no not at all it, it was tucked away um we wanted to know were you familiar with theremin like playing it yourself before trent suggested it in the 90s or was it new to you when you went up there i i always knew about the thing and you know it, just being a student of like synthesizer history and bob moog's history you know that was how he kind of got his start making electronic instruments was with theremin kits that he would sell out of the back of like popular science magazine or something like that be long before he ever made synthesizers so i kind of knew it knew the theremin's position in the history of electronic instruments it's obviously you know an an important milestone in the development of synthesizer history. And it's also an interesting, you know, the, the inventor, Leon Theremin, is, you know, a, a visionary of electronics and actually was the man who, while imprisoned by Stalin in a gulag in Siberia, designed a spying, an audio surveillance device that was completely passive and it was this device that was installed in a giant carved wooden 
replica of the Great Seal of the USA that a group of Russian school children presented to America's ambassador to Russia in the height of the Cold War, and he proudly hung this thing over his desk. And nobody knew that for seven years, this thing contained this device, which was capturing <laughs> all of the audio in the ambassador's office, and it needed no power and had no wires. And they would activate it by beaming a radio wave at it from a building across the street. It would, And this was all invented by Leon Theremin. And it would cause a little membrane... Uh, uh, the audio in the room would cause a little membrane to vibrate, much like the diaphragm on a microphone. And mm -hmm. a radio wave precisely tuned and beamed at this thing could then be reflected and picked up. And that's how the Soviets were able to listen in to everything that happened in the ambassador's office for seven years. And when it was discovered, it took the CIA two years to figure out how this thing worked because it had no wires, no batteries, no power. So... Leon Theremin, and I, kind of, I, had, I had heard about that, and I knew about the fascinating history of Leon Theremin, and he invented this thing, and there was a virtuoso or two around the world, and it was used in movies, and then he disappeared into a gulag, and 50 years later had a tearful reunion with Clara Rockmore, who was the foremost Theremin virtuoso uh, in America, and, you know, it's a heartwarming and fascinating and tragic story. So, I knew about it, and I had had one when when Moog started selling more modern theremins in the 80s or 90s. I got one partly out of feeling some karmic debt to Bob Moog and the legacy of all he'd contributed to what we do. Um, and I had this thing around in hopes that it would create some interesting noises, and I could use it. And I used it on a couple of remixes, not sure which, mm -hmm. but it was it's incredibly difficult to play to use in a way that will produce anything other than like ufo sound effects to try to play right. it melodically requires great uh manual precision and you have to stand absolutely still and have you know millimeter level control over the position of your hands to coax a usable tune out of the thing mm -hmm. until the advent of auto-tune yeah um, and there, for a while, there was an, actually a hardware unit that did auto-tune that was intended for like live pitch correction of vocals for in concert. But as soon as I saw that, I said, well, there's, there's the solution to a theremin. And I would run the clean, dry signal directly out of the theremin into an auto-tune unit. And in an auto-tune unit, you're looking at basically an octave of pitches on sort of a keyboard diagram, and you can determine which pitches will be allowed and which will not be allowed. So I would determine, okay, these four notes out of the 12 notes in an octave are the ones that are permitted for this song. And then if you adjust the response time on auto-tune so that it doesn't do that T-pain vocal thing where where you get where you get sudden jumps in pitch if you adjust that time yeah with that with 150 milliseconds of glide time on the autotune allows you to have those swoopy theremin like moments but when you land or try to land on a pitch it will then pull you into a, a note which you have designated as being permitted so yeah. the fact that it was a just kind of a perfect storm of 
me having a theremin kicking around in the 90s and Trent being uh, open to having something new and experimental to use on a few songs and the existence of these auto-tune rack mount hardware units that made it work in the touring cycle of the fragile and there was only i don't know four songs maybe i think that we used it on and so each song would have a different set of the three or four notes which were permitted and uh you know the text would change the preset on the auto-tune unit so that it called up the correct scale permissions right. for that's for each song and then i could just kind of wiggle and wobble and if i landed on a note it would pull me into pitch and with enough echo and distortion and reverb and stuff on it, I could ap approximate in my mind what I had seen Jimmy Page doing <laughs> all yeah. those years before in that Led Zeppelin movie. And, but also be able to hit a note that would hopefully sound like some squealing feedback guitar or something. At, at the alumni show, when you brought the theremin out again, was it the same setup where you're running it through a rack mount auto tune? We were actually, well, it, it was the actually the same physical theremin oh, wow. from the touring in the 90s. I have two or three of them, and I even bought a, one of the more, one of the current models, and they're all different. And they're, the way they respond is highly dependent on who knows what, the weather, the moisture in your skin, I don't know. But the one that, out of all the ones I tried as we were preparing for that show, that same one, the one that has an NIN sticker on the on the yeah. front panel where the knobs are, that was the one that behaved the best. And as it turned out, that was also the one that I had used on the, the Fragile Tours. Instead of a rack unit for auto-tune, though, uh, we used just the uh, stock pitch correction plug-in that comes included with Logic okay. on, on the Mac, uh, which is functionally has all the same controls as those old hardware units did and for all intents and purposes functions exactly the same so anybody out there who has even the cheapest home-built terrible theremin and a copy of logic well you have all the weapons at yeah. the at your disposal that i had i guess they do make it easier these days you're right no need for the big oh, yeah. rack mount unit exactly have you did you play live at all from the Fragility Tours to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Were there any live performances that you did in between that time? Good question. <laughs> um, my, I, I had to do some research, but I got on like NinWiki. And as it turns out, my last performance with Nine Inch Nails before this Cleveland event was, I think it was July 9th, 2000. Um, I remember the gig. I didn't remember the date offhand, but mm -hmm. it was at the end of the touring cycle for The Fragile. Then we did a bunch of festivals in Europe and Japan and Australia and stuff. And that final gig was uh, in Monza, Italy, at, the, at a, some giant outdoor music festival at the racetrack. And since then, I've been on stage exactly twice. Uh, once with Alec Empire when he was doing a solo mm -hmm. tour uh, outside of Atari Teenage Riot. He played at uh, Fuji Rock Festival in 2003, and his band consisted of me and Nick Endo from Atari Teenage Riot and Mersbau on drums, who is this Japanese noise artist who I didn't even know played drums. Um, 
and a guy named Gabe Serbian from the band The Locust. And it was just kind of a one-off. And we went to Japan and we rehearsed at a recording studio there for a couple of days. And then we played this gig and we had a fantastic time. We were on the main stage, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and Alec, I love Alec Empire. He's, you know, he's one of my absolute favorite innovators of weird, heavy music. Mm-hmm. So I did that one gig. And then a year or two later, somewhere around that same period of time, I uh, joined uh, Money Mark and Jack Dangers and a few other miscreants in a one-off performance at a nightclub in San Francisco that was filmed for the documentary on Bob Moog. Uh, And I just went up on stage and fiddled around with a theremin on two or three songs. And other than those two one-night stands, uh, since the divorce, I have remained completely celibate. Uh, (laughs) And so it was literally 20 years since I'd performed on stage. Wow when I hit the stage in Cleveland. Were there stage jitters? I mean, 20 years. Uh. You know, it's funny, but no. It was like riding a bike. Uh, And it wasn't, you know, we rehearsed for one afternoon uh, at a rehearsal space in Los Angeles, like a month before that gig. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, first of all, Nine Inch Nails' crew and tech their whole operation has always been, I mean, in all the years that I was involved in the band, cause you know, I joined the band in the middle of the self-destruct tours. So it was not a bunch of guys piling some broken instruments into the back of a van. By the time I came on board, it was already a completely professional operation with production managers and stage managers and enough techs and personnel to keep a violent show like the self-destruct tour from self-destructing. Uh, right. And here we are, however many decades later, and their their support staff and crew is, as you'd expect, absolutely world class and top shelf. So there was no worries about, oh, geez, how am I gonna? What's am I gonna be able to hear myself? Is my sound gonna? You know, their whole all of the support staff and crew for Nine Inch Nails is is absolutely world class. So that makes the job of stepping up on stage as effortless as it can be. Um, And it wasn't sort of shocking that, I mean, because I, you know, I played a lot of shows with Nails back in the day. So it wasn't like, oh, uh, nervous here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like, I I did have to rehearse that keyboard solo in the middle of Gave Up so that I didn't tube that. Uh, (laughs) But it wasn't, uh, part of what made it, so easy and familiar is like I know all these guys mm-hmm. and they're you know they're we lived in in the trenches together uh for a long time the only person in that whole uh in the whole live band that I didn't already know was Elon Rubin mm-hmm. so the first time I met him was in the rehearsals in Los Angeles but Alessandro I've been friends with for years uh we don't see each other very often but we've had a, a lot of long conversations usually about tech geeky modular synth stuff um and of course uh atticus i see fairly regularly i know him because you know of course his band 12 rounds that he had with his wife claude was on nothing records Mm -hmm. back in the 90s and uh so i knew him 25 years ago uh and did a remix or two for 12 rounds back in the day and to this day i see uh atticus and claude 
almost every year at the uh, BMI Film and TV Awards banquet ceremony thing where they, you know, give out these meaningless awards for film and TV scores. Um, I believe Trent is with ASCAP, so he never comes to the BMI ones. Mm. But Atticus and Claude are always there. And uh, so I see them fairly frequently. Uh, Robin, I see less frequently, but he, as it turns out, lives about a mile and a half from me. And so we would like run into each other at the grocery store or, <laughs> or pull up next to each other at a stoplight or something and be like, hey, man. So, and of course, Danny, I see that fucking dude all the time. <laughs> He's like, you know, you can't get rid of him. He's like my first wife. Uh, but as you can tell from like watching that uh, Hall of Fame interview segment, his pace and his energy level uh, yeah. and his sense of humor are the closest match of all the Nine Inch Nails alumni and members to mine. So it's kind of no mm. surprise that we see each other all the time. We go to go to, out to see bands together and we I get him to play on movie scores here and there. And so it's Danny I see all the freaking time. <laughs> the only person I don't see that that I haven't seen much in the past couple of decades is Chris Vrenna. And that kind of breaks my heart because I love Chris and, you know, we're such good friends. And then he left Nine Inch Nails like under what, I don't know, at the time I remember thinking were mysterious circumstances or something. Mm -hmm. um, and he was just kind of gone one day. And I didn't probe the issue too deeply. Um, and of course, he remained active and he worked with Marilyn Manson for years on a bunch of records. And now he lives in freaking Huntsville, Alabama. So he's not just down the street. I can't just holler at him and say, dude, we're going to go see Roger Waters tonight. Get in the car, <laughs> uh, which is a drag. But walking into that rehearsal space, I mean, it was a little surreal to walk into the rehearsal space and to see Chris Vrenna sitting mm. behind a drum kit. He looks basically the same. And everybody involved, everybody's personality is the same as it was back then. It's not like you walk in and there's like some dude that looks like Ed Asner and you're like, oh my God, what the hell happened to you? And <laughs> their personality is different and they look different. And, you know, everybody's, obviously we're all older, you know, a little, a little bit of gray in people's beards or whatever, but the personalities are the same. The, maybe some of the baggage has been discarded and so on. Uh, but that was the most sort of life-affirming thing about the whole event was walking into the rehearsal space and seeing that it's like, it wasn't 20 years, it's like it was 20 days since I saw these guys. Yeah. So that yeah. was a, a hugely, you know, like I said, life-affirming, heartwarming, however you want to put it. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't like some Pink Floyd reunion where these people are mortal enemies and they're struggling to hold it together and avoid punching each other out or something. Yeah. Right. You know, it wasn't that at all. Everybody was enthusiastic to be there and happy that Trent had put this thing together and had engineered it to come off smoothly. And it did. And it was more fun than I've had in a long time. Yeah. And in your email, I mean, you don't have to talk about this too much if you don't want to, but you mentioned that it was the first time you really had closure in like 20 plus years after, after yeah, leaving. I, you know, and I only, I, I say that, you know, the, the, that event in Cleveland was kind of a, a, 
a way to to screw the lid back on the jar, I guess, because my time in Nine Inch Nails in, in the 90s ended without a sort of definite moment or mm-hmm. event or thing. It wasn't like, hey, man, I'm going to go do something else now. Okay, great. Have a good one, dude. You know, there was mm-hmm. no kind of definitive moment. It just kind of like dribbled off and tapered out until I just left. Um, you know, like I said, my last gig was in Italy in July of 2000. And then I went, after we came off tour, I went home to, to be with my dad for a, a couple of months because he was sort of right at the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And then when I returned to New Orleans in the fall, there was like nobody was around. Uh, Danny was still in New Orleans, but Robin had left and Jerome was back wherever he came from, Cleveland or Akron, wherever he was called home in those days. And there was like what used to be a bustling scene of a hive of activity at the Nothing Records studio on Magazine Street was just kind of a ghost town, you know? And I lived in an apartment above a bar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess every apartment in New Orleans is above a bar, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I lived across the street from the studio. So, and all my gear and, you know, everything was in my own private little room at Trent studio. So I would go over there every day to work on stuff and to see what's happening. What, what are we doing next? You know, right. I came off of that tour full of energy, ready to let's okay. What's next. So we're going to do an album. We're going to blah, blah, blah. And Trent wasn't like around mm. and nobody else was around. And obviously that was the beginning of sort of a phase of uh, rebirth and reinvention uh, for Trent. So fair enough. Uh, and you know, I would, I would ask the manager at the time, John Malm, mm-hmm. I'd be like, what are we, what's, what's going on next, man? What are we doing? Let's, let's get a game plan together. And, uh, all I could get from him was, I have no information for you at this time. <laughs> and, you know, I had these half finished other projects, like the album that I had been writing with Paige Hamilton for his band mm-hmm. Helmet. Mm-hmm. And we sort of had a bunch of songs that were half finished and he was in Los Angeles and it wasn't really, it wouldn't have been appropriate to like bring him to new Orleans and to use the big studio at Trent's place for that. Because like, what if Trent needed to come in and felt like writing and here helmet is like spread out with all their gear in his studio. So that, that wasn't going to be appropriate. And so I hung around new Orleans, you know, from the autumn until June of 2001 and trying to be there and available and ready in case like, okay, Trent just showed up and here's the game plan, guys. Let's jump into it. And that moment kind of never occurred. And I, you know, I would question the John Malm, the manager, and he'd say, Let me make something very clear. Nobody is fired. But, <laughs> you know, but you gotta do what you gotta do. So he he didn't want to unplug anybody, mm-hmm. but he also wasn't like saying you can't leave or we'll sue you or, you know, it was nothing like that, but it got to a point where around June, I was just like, what are we, you know, first of all, I I did not like living in new Orleans. I had been Mm. there for six, six or seven years. Well, however long it was. And I was like, I'm over it. Mm -hmm. I still had like, I had cars in friends, garages in Los Angeles. And I had like phone numbers in Los Angeles and stuff, even all those years later. So I was just like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go, to Los Angeles, work on this helmet record, and you know where to find me. 
Give me a call if you need. And that call didn't come until 21 years later when we were setting up the Cleveland thing, which I only describe that scenario because to make it clear that it wasn't like this, okay, you're fired, get the fuck out of here. Or, okay, I fucking quit, I'm leaving and fuck all you guys. It was just this weird like tapering off Mm -hmm. and then like radio silence until... Some years later, when it was like, oh, wow, Nine Inch Nails has a new record coming out. Oh, well, I guess I won't yeah. be going back to New Orleans then. Well, at least he got back to you, you know? It, it yeah. took a few decades, but he did get back to you. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, obviously we all uh, went through some shit, quote unquote, uh, in those intervening decades. But I got to say, it was like no time had passed walking into the room and talking to Trent about not just the music that we were going to do in Cleveland or whatever, but just everything. It was, it, it was fantastic to get back to what felt like exactly where we left off, minus any of the drama, you know? It was right. about as good as a, as a situation like that can yeah. be. So I guess we can... Can we ask you questions about um, Speak, recording the fragile? Speaking of New Orleans, <laughs> Nothing sure. Studios, and actually speaking of Helmet... Uh, there's, I think, a fan belief that Paige Hamilton played on No You Don't, and I think it's incorrect. He may have. Okay. Paige came down to New Orleans quite a bit. Helmet opened up for Nine Inch Nails on some leg of some tour at one point, which is how I met Paige, and we bonded over our shared love of certain music and whatever, movies, and... Uh, it's, it's highly likely that pay he definitely was in the main control room with a guitar in his lap at more mm. than one afternoon. Okay. But, and I've chimed in on a few uh, threads on various forums where people are wondering about the, you know, what kind of synthesizer did the bass sound on this song or whatever on nine inch nails threads. Yeah. And I've said that said something like this in some of those forum threads where it's like, that ma- the making of the fragile was such a long, drawn out process with so many additions and restructurings and songs that started off with just a four bar loop, and then that became the intro to a different song, and then it had a different name. And at one point, there was more than a hundred sketches for songs in progress on our file server network with all, all of them with rough names that then would get changed to the real name once Trent had some lyrics. And so who can say yeah. who played <laughs> what guitar on what track? I, you know, I listen back to the record and I go, okay, I can, out of these 40 items on this song, I can definitively tell you how six of them were done. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest, I, you know, it's lost to the sands of time. Perhaps there is more detailed documentation somewhere uh, in the, the recording notes or the track sheets or stuff. But uh, in the cobwebs of my brain, uh, those details are gro- <laughs> growing foggy. Yeah. But Paige definitely contributed stuff at, during the making of The Fragile, how much of it wound up in the final mixes of songs and on which songs is data that I do not possess right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still going to ma- remain sort of a mystery um what what can you tell us about 
the the various Buddha choirs that are in the liner notes or the <laughs> fragile, because uh, we are wondering, like, who were they? Who was sent out to ring? We have a pet theory that Danny Loner was sent out to wrangle them, as that's his personality. But I don't, maybe you had something. You'd, you'd to do. think so. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the 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 Buddha Belly Choir or the Buddha Choir is a reference to the bar across the street from the studio, the one that I lived above. I was going to ask if it was oh, the one you okay. lived above. Okay. Yeah. It's, it was called the Buddha belly and it was run by this guy who had three or four bars in new Orleans, like checkpoint. Charlie was one. Uh, and he owned a few restaurants and he had opened up that Buddha belly around the time that we moved there and Trent started building out the studio. And the Buddha belly was a, a feature of all of this, businessman's restaurants or bars were that they all had uh, video poker mm-hmm. and pool tables mm-hmm. and dartboards and laundromats. <laughs> okay. So the idea, it was, you know, brilliant business acumen on this guy. You'd go in, you'd put your laundry in, play a game of pool, order a burger, have a bunch of beers, and he's making money on everything that you're doing that day. Um, I don't think the Buddha belly was 24 hours a day, but it was... It felt like it was. Um, <laughs> and one of our assistants, the, above the bar was two apartments. I lived in one and these three guys lived in another that had gone to audio school in Florida together and moved to New Orleans specifically on a mission to try to work for Trent Reznor and oh, Nine wow. Inch Nails. One of them, Nigel, did get a job working at the studio as like the runner intern, go set up these mic stands, you know, go, mm-hmm. ca- go coil up those cables. And one of the other guys that lived, they had a band. These three guys had a band together called Dead Hand System, which was oh, actually- I've heard of them. Not yeah. terrible. Yeah. yeah. And one of the other guys who didn't work at the studio, Marcus, for a minute there, he was working downstairs at the Buddha Belly, flipping burgers and th- throwing beers. Um, and so we were over there all the time. That was the easiest and quickest solution to I'm hungry. Yeah. Was just go across the street, order up, go get five cheeseburgers. And- at one point, a girl who had a, a sort of a groupie girl who had followed us around to a few gigs on a tour wound up moving to New Orleans and getting a job at the Buddha Valley. And we're like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> you know, is this a, like a stalker situation or something? Yeah. Exactly. But she was, it turns out she was not a, a violent murderer or anything. <laughs> um, and so the Buddha Valley choir was sort of whoever's in the Buddha Valley. Go over there, you know, go across the street, tell Marcus to lock up the place and get over here and bring whoever's sitting around the Buddha belly to come in and sing gang backing vocals on. And it was usually friends of ours, people that we knew who weren't directly involved in the Nothing Studios operation, but were also not, they weren't just random people off the street. They were sort Uh, of, sort of known, you know, sort of coins. Exactly. Okay. The, uh, the the extended family. Yeah, because the lore is they were just Randos. strangers that were wrangled and brought over, and which is interesting. There may have been there may have been a couple who weren't f- at, whose last names we didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> let's say, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, Judy, was one of the Buddha Belly Choir. Okay. A couple of her friends who she was in like burlesque shows with and stuff was were part of it. So there was like an extended crowd of friends and family okay. that contributed to the Buddha Belly Choir. So there was musical talent in there. It wasn't just grunting bar flies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was sort of like what what we would 
it, it would be listed on the track sheet as gang vox. Yeah. So it's, here's the vocals, everybody sing along as best you can. But by that point, everybody had a few beers in them. So it was going to be loose and sound like, uh, you know, a rowdy gang of unruly backing singers. <laughs> right. Yes. At some points, it does sound like a rowdy, you know, rowdy dudes. At some point, it sounds kind of pretty, like on the day the world went away, which I, I think they're credited in there mm-hmm, somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, somebody must be talented in this in this Buddha in the gang box. <laughs> I just have questions about like working with Dr. Dre on even deeper. Yeah, uh, was that like a were one you of the, your was that the cool experience for you? You were there, right, at the session? Yeah, mm-hmm. and that was all credit to Jimmy Iovine. And if you've ever watched those documentaries that came out a few years ago about Jimmy Iovine mm-hmm. and Interscope Records and all that, yeah, the Defiant ones, you know, I think exactly, mm-hmm. and. I remember watching that and going, okay, I'm glad I'm not the only person that thinks that about him. Because I didn't know the excruciating detail of his career and the fact that he had produced Springsteen and that he was instrumental in putting Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty in the room Mm -hmm. for what would become one of their biggest hits. Um, And there's that scene that's reenacted in the documentary or in some other movie about Death Row or something where... Uh, I believe it's the scene I'm remembering is an actor who's playing Jimmy Iovine is speaking to an actor who's playing Dr. Dre. And Mm -hmm. the Jimmy Iovine character says, look, I don't know about rap music, but I know that what you do is good. Mm -hmm. And that's the aspect of what a true record producer is. Now everybody calls themselves a producer if they have a laptop and can throw together a beat. All of a sudden they're a producer. But in, in... the mind of old guys like me, that's not a producer. A producer is someone like Jimmy Iovine who can look across musical and genres and boundaries and see talent mm-hmm. and think of ways to accentuate and I'll say exploit, but I mean that in the kindest possible way, but to to give that talent the most fertile grounds in which to flower. And that whole experience with Nine Inch Nails and Dr. Dre uh, working together or attempting to collaborate in the while we were in the middle of making The Fragile and Dre was in the middle of making The Chronic 2000 is exactly an example of Jimmy Iovine's genius as a record producer and saying, I'm going to take my two most talented artists and put them in the room together and see what happens. And maybe it'll be a bust. Maybe nothing. Maybe they're too different. Maybe they don't get along. Maybe they fight with each other. But it sparks might fly, and it might create magic. Now, it was a obviously we were huge fans of Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and Death Row Records and Ice Cube's record America's Most Wanted was our pre-show warm-up CD in the dressing room. Like that's what we would listen to to get us fired up to go out and kick butt. On mm-hmm. like the self-destruct and the fragility tours and everything, um, because it was aggressive, violent music with aggressive and violent sounds. And Ice Cube is fantastic. And also, you know, Dre's uh, everything that Dre's been involved in has that touch of uh, that, that few other musicians or producers in that genre seem to have. That you know, you can sort of roll them off on on ten fingers. And the idea that Nine Inch Nails and Dr. Dre could coexist in the same musical space. That's it wasn't didn't sound far out to us because we were intimately familiar with everything that Dre had been involved in from his first 
you know, the first NWA records on. Um, so it wasn't like, didn't sound crazy to us. And likewise, Dre knew, well, he knew about Nine Inch Nails, you know. Mm-hmm. And however, when we got in the room together, we, we all prepared maybe five or ten of the partially sketched out song frameworks that we had on hand that we thought might be in the ballpark that Dre wouldn't hear him and go, what the heck, what am I going to do with this? And we assembled those in a manner that they could be loaded up onto Pro Tools machines at his studio. And we came out to Los Angeles with this hard drive full of stuff. And Dre was in long-term lockout at Larrabee Studios in West Hollywood. And we rolled in there and him and uh, I believe his name is Mike Elizondo, who's the bass player, and uh, and Melman, who was the, the guy behind the MPC-60 drum machine. Mm. They were all in the middle of doing tracks. But obviously at that point in Dre's career, money was no object. It wasn't like, oh, we're getting short on studio time here. It's like he was in Larrabee for months on end. Yeah. Um, and that's not a cheap room. Uh, so we were, it was all love. You know, we rolled in there and Snoop was kicking around. And, uh, you know, we said, look, here, let's just play some of this stuff and see if there's anything you want to you want to fuck with. And as it turned out, the song Even Deeper had uh, has that sort of hypnotic, slow kind of almost trip hop style beat. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that, that Dre gravitated towards first. And that's the thing that we spent the most time screwing around with. And then we we screwed around with a couple frameworks of tracks that he had on hand. And then we kind of parted ways. We left the even deeper tracks after we had kind of put them up and explained what's going on and what might be cool to do on them. We left that stuff with him. And then we took the frameworks of tracks that that he had given us back to New Orleans. So we were out there for, I don't know, a, a week or two. Uh, with no pressure, it wasn't like, okay, whatever we get this week is going on the record. It wasn't like that at all. It was just to familiarize each other with the, the half-finished material we had on hand, and then we would part ways, and then I believe Dre continued working on stuff after we had left and then sent that down to New Orleans so that Trent and Alan could uh, integrate it into wherever that song was sitting that yeah. day. Is there stuff you guys did that could have ended up on chronic two that's what i want to know oh i wish (laughs) i mean that's a great record i've 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 listened to that record so many freaking times and i don't hear anything that (laughs) i did (laughs) maybe in the background somewhere hey but you know all the stuff that you know again all credit to dre for using so much of like scott storch's work on there which is really at the time was like coming from left field and, you know, Storch became a huge hip-hop producer. But at the time, he, before Chronic 2000 came out, he was, I believe he had been in the band The Roots at one point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the stuff that he added to the Chronic was fresh and new and daring. And, you know, again, all credit to Dre for hearing what Scott was doing and thinking, oh, that's going on my record. For sure. Um, so... There is a song, I don't know if you'll remember, because like you said, there were over 100 songs recorded yeah. and they had alternate titles. Yeah. We've all been trying to figure out what rotation is. Yeah. Or if it's even something that's on the front. It was written on a track sequence on a whiteboard. It yep. It said rotation. Do you recall that one? Uh, I do. Also because I have a bunch of drum samples that we made for that, which 
are called, you know, rotation okay. drum, rotation kick, rotation snare, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and let me dig into the archives live on the mic. Whoa. Oh, my God. Let's just see. I do. Nailed exclusive. Be, yeah. I may not have that on deck. Yeah, it would be wild if you just had that available to pull up right there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, as it turns out, I don't okay. because we were working in a different uh, DAW software back then. And I have a bunch of the raw audio files, but they, they I would need to do a pretty extensive <laughs> audio forensics yeah. and software conversion routine. But rotation would have been, um, it, it might have, there was two songs, there's two tracks, Rotation and Complication. Mm -hmm. um, and what is the, the song on the Fragile that goes... Um, Just Like You Imagine? <laughs> no, it's... Uh, is it one, is it an instrumental or a lyric? No, it's, um, and the lyric is... Uh, gotta get up, get back to the bottom! Oh, big come down. down. It's... One of those, either rotation or complication, I think. Don't some super fan is going to go. You're totally wrong, dude. Uh -huh. I think it was one of those two became the big come down. Okay, wow. That's my fan theory was just like you imagined, but I was way off. Yeah, just like you imagined. I and again, there is no like decoder sheet that says, ah, old name was this, new name is that. The only way I can figure those out is if I can somehow hear enough of an audio file from my archives of the raw tracking stuff and then equate that against the album yeah. and go, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> that became Big Come Down. And I do have, because part of my gig in Nine Inch Nails was to be like, you know, the guardian of the data. So I have excruciatingly massive backups of everything. But a lot of it is in 25-year-old formats for software that sometimes doesn't exist anymore or in order to boot up the half-finished version of Big Come Down, I would need to have a computer from 1997 with mm. the software from 1997 yeah. or else all I see is a folder of audio files that with no timestamps, you know. That would be amazing, uh, honestly, but we won't make you do all the archaeology right <laughs> now. Um, can we plug your career a little bit and talk about what's what's sure. coming well first i guess just like how did you actually get started in scoring did you start in television well yeah and this was you know you gotta remember by the time i joined nine inch nails or even got pulled into trent's world i was 29 mm -hmm. um and by that point i had already had bands in new york city more than one record deals more than one publishing deals and none of it had really set the world on fire so in parallel to all those failed bands, you know, dragging our drum kit in a taxi cab to CBGB's kind of thing, I had, the only real job I ever had was working at the Sam Ash Music Store on 48th Street for about two years. And that was back in the pre-internet era. If you wanted to learn about what the new synthesizer or sampler was, you had to physically go to 48th Street in Manhattan where all the music stores were located next door to each other in about a half a block area. One of my customers there in the late 80s was an Australian record producer that would come over once a year to buy whatever the new hotness was. Mm -hmm. 
And he and I hit it off because we shared a love of kind of obscure art rock. We loved Roxy Music and Brian Eno and stuff like that, which not a lot of customers that came into Sam Ash back then knew about that kind of music. Um, so we hit it off. He had produced some Australian kind of art rock bands like Iva Davies and Ice House. Um, and so we had a shared interest in certain musical styles. And after about two years of me working at the store and seeing this guy every four months or six months, um, he showed up at the store one day and he said, hey, I just moved to New York and I need to set up a whole rig because in four days I have to start scoring a TV series. And it was the final season of the original version of The Equalizer, which was a series on CBS in the 80s, mm. uh, which has now been rebooted into movies mm. with Denzel. And now I think Queen Latifah is doing an Equalizer okay. reboot series. Uh, but the original version of that was, you know, sort of like an A-team kind of thing. You know, if, if you're in trouble and don't know where else to turn, call The Equalizer, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and Stuart Copeland from The Police had composed the theme and scored the first two seasons of that series. This Australian guy was being brought over because Stuart had quit the show to go do something else. And so this Australian producer was coming over to, to finish out the run of the series. But he didn't actually play any instruments. He was a record producer and a very tasteful guy. Mm -hmm. And he knew how to operate the equipment, but he didn't play, per se. So he brought a buddy of his from Australia... That, was, that could play like the piano parts and the strings parts, but was not a sound designer or synth programmer. He brought me in to come up after work, at, after I got off work at this music store, I would come up and make scary sounds using the samplers and synthesizers, and then I would program the score and mix it. And so I had had, you know, years before I got involved with Nine Inch Nails, I had already done a few years of working with this Australian composer on real weekly hour-long network tv series and then after the equalizer ended we did a few more sort of made for tv movie of the week kind of things mm -hmm. and so i had already been chewing on that for a while then came a 15-year detour into nine inch nails and white zombie remixes and mm -hmm. whatever after i left nine inch nails and returned to la did the helmet record mm -hmm. and I had remained at friends and remained in contact with this Australian record producer who sadly died a few years ago. His name was Cameron Allen. Mm. And Cameron and I had remained friends, and he said, hey, look, there's, there's TV series out there, bro, if you want to get back on that horse. He was kind of a renaissance man who would jump from thing to thing. He would score a TV series one year, and then he and his wife would move to Japan to film a documentary about a, a physicist or something. And then they would... The next year, they would write a book about architecture. You know, he was a very diverse character. But when I reunited with him in the early 2000s, he said, look, there's TV series out there. I've got an agent. We can line some of them up. But as you know, I can't play any instruments. So I would need you. I would need you to have my back. I said, look, I would love to. But this time around, I need my name on the credits. Because mm. back in the 80s, I was an uncredited third man on this thing. Mm. I was just overjoyed to be getting paid $1,000 an episode to make drum beats on these yeah. TV scores. I'd be overjoyed now doing that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so 20 years later, I said, look, I would love to, but I need my name on the card. And by that, I mean on the front of the show. Yeah. So it said, you know, music by Cameron Allen and Charlie Clouser. And he said, absolutely, let's do it. So within 
in very short order, we got a TV series called Fast Lane on Fox that only went for one season, sort of a buddy cop kind of Miami Vice-ish thing, humor and danger all in one. Um, and I was still working on the helmet record at the same time. And while that was transpiring, then the phone call came from my lawyer about the first Saw movie. Mm. And he said, look, I represent, I represent these two young writers a writer and a director team. They've got this indie horror movie. They need a score that's not orchestral mm. and that is heavily influenced by industrial and electronic music. And they know all about you. They know all about your remixes. They know that you've been involved in scoring. They know that you're not just some refugee from a band who wants to score movies, but mm. that you've actually done this yeah. for years. Um, and they also are like Rob Zombie has deep knowledge of comic books and monster movie monsters. Mm -hmm. These guys have deep knowledge, you know, James Wan and Lee one L who were the team that created the saw franchise. They have deep knowledge of genre movies and, you know, Italian horror movies and industrial music and electronic music. So they knew they had already created a temporary score for their movie using everything from, you know, weird Italian horror movie electronic stuff in the John Carpenter vein mm -hmm. to industrial music like Ministry mm -hmm. and Einster's End of Neubotten and all this kind of stuff. So they had, it, it wasn't, they didn't take any convincing yeah. for them to say, oh, you mean the guy from Nine Inch Nails, the keyboard player who's also done some scoring? Sure, you know, bring him in. Right. Um, and I went and met these guys at 10 in the morning, watched a rough cut of the Saw movie, and by lunchtime i was headed back to my place with a five-week deadline to do the score okay five weeks it was quick yeah that is quick guessing that you're probably a big horror fan and it is the time of year that everyone is watching a lot of scary movies so what are some <laughs> of your favorites and blake said you can't pick saw yeah. you can't no saws <laughs> you know and this might sound weird but i've noticed that i don't consume tons of media whether it's movies or music that is very close to the style of what I do. So like, I don't listen to a ton of bands that are similar to Nine Inch Nails or mm -hmm. whatever. And I don't watch every single horror movie that comes out, except out of curiosity about how the score might be put together mm -hmm. or, you know, to see what the current trends are, you know, to see what Joe Bashara is doing on the latest movie or, or I, I remember there, there's this interesting, strange instrument called the apprehension engine mm -hmm. which i saw on youtube and I immediately and i immediately ordered one and it should be here next week oh and wow. then as i was <laughs> as i was i was digging into that then i realized that well one of the guys that was involved in developing it is this composer named mark corvin who did like the lighthouse that black and white mm -hmm. movie Loved uh it. with movie. with willem dafoe and so i'll you know i tend to like and be interested in movies, not just because they're um, 
of a certain genre that I might be associated with, but because of the thread of the Sonics behind them, um, I've been curious about all the movies that Joe Bashara scores because he comes from a similar kind of background. You know, his scores are completely orchestral and organic, but he has a similar background to me involved with like, you know, synthesizers and heavy music and that kind of thing. Um, but my favorite horror movies, because tis the season, uh, yeah. you know, number, number one is definitely The Shining. Mm. And I know that Stephen King fans or maybe horror movie fans are like, that's not a real horror movie. That's not a good, the book was way better or whatever. I don't care. I remember seeing it when it first came out and thinking, this is the real shit. And partly because I'm a huge Kubrick nerd and I love the stoicness of the way he shoots movies mm -hmm. and the, the soundtrack, obviously it's not a, a composed score. I think only a few pieces of music were done by, uh, Wendy Carlos uh, for, they may have even been done for other purposes, but were used in The Shining. But most of the music in The Shining is things like Bartok and Penderecki and that sort of thing and Ligeti. And also a lot of that is, that style of music, a lot of the Ligeti pieces were used in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is, mm -hmm. I consider a horror movie, <laughs> even though it's sci-fi on the face of it, but it's a horror movie. The villain is Hal, the computer, who yeah. commits horrible crimes, you know. And so my thread of interest in those things, in that genre, are I'm drawn in by the sonics of what's going on in the score. And, you know, I saw both 2001 Space Odyssey and The Shining when they first came out as I was a, you know, tender child i think my dad took me to see 2001 because he knew i loved you know rocket ships or whatever when i was <laughs> 11 years old or something and i just remember hearing those atonal ligeti choral pieces and just being dumbfounded i didn't understand what i was hearing that those were human voices but i had never heard i'd never been exposed to anything like that and i was just blown away and that triggered and you know you'd think that would have triggered me to like study classical music and to un try to understand it but i kind of never did i preferred to have it remain a mystery like i didn't want to know what the sheet music looked like if there is sheet music for that i i prefer for it to be a uh, an unclimbable mountain, but I would love the idea of incorporating some influences from those composers into what I do. Um, of course, that's what I think going into it. And then I listen back to the final mixes of a saw movie or whatever and go, well, there's, <laughs> that's, that's nothing to do with Ligeti or Penderecki or Bartok, but yeah. the, the seed is somewhere in the back of my mind and the memory of the effect the powerful effect that those things have on had on me is somehow steering me as i work and mm -hmm. so that's you know in terms of the my favorite horror movies okay shining 2001 uh and children of men is that a oh, horror movie? Yeah, no. I would consider it's a great a, movie. I never thought of it know, as horror, but existential I do like horror, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I and I tend to when I'm when I say when I see a movie and I go, I love that movie. A lot of times, it's a movie that I would never be hired to score it, or it doesn't even have a score. Like 
Jackie Brown, the Tarantino movie. I've watched it so many times it drives my wife insane because I watch it over and over again. And I just think it's a fantastic movie. has nothing to do with the kind of music I make or the kind of movies I would be hired to score, but I love it. Another movie like The the International, which is an, a sort of espionage thriller about international banking and the Interpol, and it stars Clive Owen and Naomi Watts, and mm. it is so good. And I've watched it so many times. And again, it drives my wife crazy. She's like, you're not watching that again. Um, I liked, and I loved the score so much that I, and I've, this is literally the only time I've ever done this. I sought out who the composer was and asked all my friends and my agent and my other composers I know, do you know these guys? Can you get me their phone number? Like, I just want to ask them fanboy <laughs> stuff about this score. Because there's these tension cues in that movie that are, incredibly nerve-wracking but they're so simple and minimalist and one cue is just like a timpani with the hand muting it going boom 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 just incredibly effective and totally minimalist and the kind of thing where i think oh i wish i'd done that or i wish i would get hired to do something like that so i could totally screw it up and get fired uh, <laughs> but those I, I only bring those up as examples of movies that like I don't immerse myself in the horror music or horror movie genre maybe as much as I should. But the upside to that is maybe I'm not I'm less in danger of repeating some tropes. Yep. Yeah. You know, I'm just kind of going at it not blind, but not steeped in that's become a little, you know, almost embarrassing at times when I'm talking like with James Wan and he'll reference um, you know, these, these Italian horror movies that I've never seen. He'll be like, oh, something like this. And then I got to like write it down and look it up. And <laughs> Yeah, I just wrote down The International. The International is a great movie. I just wrote it down. Like, I need to watch the it. Suspiria yeah. score by Goblin. Familiar with that one? Right. Speak? Yes, I am only because James Wan was referencing it. And I was mm -hmm. like, I, I don't know that one. So I had to. Yeah. And as it turned out, I had seen that movie, but like. Mm -hmm. At a midnight movie in college when I was like stoned out of my mind or something. So I didn't. Best way to see you know, a movie. Very exactly. unsettling music out of that one. Yeah. Like prog rock. Right. Those are, those are great examples. Yeah. And they've become, you see them referenced a lot in discussions about horror movie scores and stuff. So, and it was, you know, to be fair, it was 20 years ago when I was working with James Wan on like the first few movies we did together that he was mentioning that. And I was like, oh shit, I kind of. I'm embarrassed to, that I don't already know every nuance of those scores. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I kind of had to do a little backstory research on them to make sure I was up to speed for the next time we talked. Cram and do your horror homework, of course. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've only done 10 of these Saw movies, so. <laughs> Nine so far. Number Nine 10 so far. Is, well, number okay. 10 is coming. Am I not even supposed to talk about 10? No. 10 is, it's... It's well known that it's coming and it's in progress, and that's about all I okay. know about it. But it's they are we are hitting the magic number ten. Saw X is in production as we speak. Is that going to be the actual title? They're just going to call it Saw X. I like that, like Jason uh, yeah. X. Keep yeah. it. I mean, they kind of got you know they, they could have a great logo for the thing with like a couple of severed fingers making an X or something. You know, yeah, there two you go. bloody knives. <laughs> I have no idea where it fits in the timeline of Saw movies, um, but I'm so grateful to James and Lee for creating such an, en an enduring set of characters, and of course to the fan base for just loving it. And like 
yes, they, they discuss it and argue about it and they love some f- movies in the franchise and they hate others. And But it's all done out of a love for the genre and a love for being scared. So, mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and I'm eternally grateful to all parties involved in the thing for making me a part of that family. And, you know, when I, I get the call from the producers, who are the same producers who've been involved in all of them, the director of Saw X is Kevin Groiter, who's was the editor of the first movie and has been involved in all of the movies. And when I get the call from the producers, there's no, like, question of whether I'll be involved from their end. They're like, you're the guy. You know what to do. We're doing another one, so clear your, what, you know, clean off your desk and get ready. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I will remain eternally grateful that I become a part of that extended family, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Blake had some questions about... Oh, with the Spit hammers? Fire. Yeah. So you've worked oh, yeah. with, I've seen what you've done with Spitfire Audio and watched a video about you creating the hammers sample, what I, I believe is a sample pack. Yep. Um, first of all, is hammers a, a nails pun? <laughs> um, you know, kind of. Uh, I don't know where I came up with that name. You know, I came up with that and uh, the original concept was that there would be uh you know, the Charlie Clouser composer's toolbox mm. that involved things like hammers and maybe saws and maybe <laughs> nails and maybe wires and pliers and wrenches and who knows what. Well, we've only done one yeah. uh, tool for the box so far, but, mm. um, you know, the Spitfire guys are one of the most innovative purveyors in that weird space where they're not just sample packs but they are virtual instruments that come up that load up into your music production software as a plug-in so it's not just a folder full of like wave files that you have to deal with however but they go to great lengths to package and format and create a playable instrument out of the raw material that is created by their collaborators like me and that is what there was never any question of me it wasn't like, oh, I want to release a sample pack. I wonder who I should do it through. It wasn't that at all. It was a case of me having a long-standing friendship with the principals at Spitfire, Christian Henson and uh, Paul Thompson, and many of their other lieutenants in the company. Being a fan and a user and a customer, I've spent you know tens of thousands of dollars on their products over oh, wow. the years. Um, I have most of the products that they've made, and just being a fan of what they do. And they actually, I was at their booth at a trade show, just standing at one of the like demo stations with a pair of headphones, listening to some sounds from one of their latest products. And Christian came over and he said, hey, you're Charlie Clouser. Because you have a name tag on at these trade shows, right? Uh-huh. And, I was, and so he saw my name tag. And he's like, hey. And he knew all about, like, I was, how do you know about like Saw movies and Nine Inch Nails? Like you guys service... Hans Zimmer and, you know, A-list movie composers. How do you know about little old me over here in my little weird corner on the left-hand side of of the movie industry? He's like, oh, no, we love all the weird sound design you do and blah, blah, blah. So they kind of approached me. I wasn't trying to like, hey, let me see if I can meet the vice president of the company and get some free shit off him. Uh, (laughs) But we, this was, you know, 12 years ago or something. We struck up a friendship and had always... You know, whenever they're in town, they're like, hey, come out come out with a bunch of composers. Just meet us for dinner. We're buying. So I would network with these guys. And and then they f- 
been kind of pitching the idea of, hey, we should collaborate on, on a product together. And we came up with this idea of doing a series of different things. And I knew that the drum library, ham, which would become Hammers, would be the most labor-intensive and logistically complex of the th concepts for different products that we had thought of. So that's why I wanted to do that one first. <laughs> Just like get the worst, get the, the most painful part of the process. Let's do that one first. Because everything yeah. we would want to do together will, after will be easier. Um, and it was a fairly involved process. We did record the, all the drums at my house. Uh, all the drums were drums that I already owned. Mm -hmm. um, and we recorded it in this giant concrete living room at my house, which is in some of the videos. And that's where I record drums for my own scores and stuff. So it was just, we actually tr did an experiment where we went to a beautiful scoring stage where orchestras are recorded for movie scores. And we recorded some of my drums there and we listened to the results. And we actually all preferred the results from my living room. Yeah. Warts, okay. you know, warts and all with motorcycles driving by on the road. Cause it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's not soundproofed, but the reverb character and the tonality of this concrete and glass space is different to the sort of everyday cinematic epic percussion uh -huh. libraries of which there are dozens. And we didn't want to do just another one of those. People might hear the motorcycles going through and say, oh, I really like the textures he's generating. Exactly. There's yeah. this cool like buzz in the background <laughs> there, you know. Um, we have a lot of musical and musician listeners and I, I, it sounds really cool what you've done. And I want to, I do recommend the Spitfire stuff. I've downloaded free stuff from them and it is really cool. So I, I highly yeah. recommend it. And I, I concur and I highly recommend anybody who's making music on a computer uh, with any, you know, with Logic or Cubase or Pro Tools or whatever, definitely don't just go to Spitfire and spend money. Yes, mm -hmm. sure, do that. But they have a whole series of free instruments, yep. both the piano book series, which are created by you and me, people sending, making samples and sending them in. Mm -hmm. And then they also have their labs series, which I think the labs stuff is also free, isn't it? I have a bunch of that. And I yeah. have their BBC uh, orchestra oh. for free. Mm -hmm. which is amazing. It's and, cool. you know, Spitfire are hugely successful and can therefore afford to give away a lot of stuff, partly as an enticement, yeah. but also partly for people that just plain, they're not going to spend a thousand bucks on an orchestral library. So yeah. you know what? Here's a free version for you. And if you're a student and you have a .edu email address, you can get discounts and even more free products than grown-ups with money can get, <laughs> you know? So I, I definitely also recommend anybody who's making music on a computer and wants interesting sounds, go to spitfireaudio.com yeah. and just pillage and pilfer everything that you can grab for free from their collections. It's all great stuff. Yeah. And we at Nailed are not being paid for this by Spitfire. Just nope. throwing that. <laughs> nope. We have no sponsors. And um, I've spent way more money on Spitfire products than yeah. I've made from Hammers. So we're not yet recouped yet. Uh, I see. <laughs> um, just random curiosity. Is that a water phone behind you? Um, that is actually a device made by Chaz Smith, which is inspired by a water phone. Okay. That thing behind me is called Tio. Um, and, you know, the Chaz Smith story is a whole other side story <laughs> to the soundscape of the saw movies mm -hmm. and he is a metal sculptor and microtonal instrument builder he has extensive you know he's in his early 70s now he has extensive 
metal fabrication expertise and experience and can weld and fabricate devices like giant sculptures and these huge gyroscopically stabilized camera mounting systems and all of this insane engineering. But he's also a musician and an expert pedal steel player. Hmm. And he was a student at CalArts in the 70s at a crucial time when CalArts was the nexus of experimental music in the dawning days of electronic and experimental music. And his time there coincided with, uh, you know, it's just one of those golden confluences of people in the same place at the same time. And he was, over his entire career, he's built instruments only for himself. And he's been used on a lot of Hans Zimmer scores. He's released a whole bunch of records of his own music, which is experimental and microtonal and awesome. And I was introduced to him by a, a, a friend that I'd known for 30 or so years, who sadly died a couple years ago. His name was Peter Freeman. And Peter had played with uh, experimental and ambient musicians like John Hassel. And he toured with Seal, playing bass in his live band. And Peter, when he heard that I was going to be working on this horror movie, he said, oh, I've got to introduce you to Chaz Smith because he builds these instruments that create the most terrifying sounds. And he introduced me to Chaz and I basically licensed a bunch of pre-existing sounds that he had already sampled of his instruments for his own use and i have used those in all of the saw movies but only in the saw movies and Hmm. so the instruments that he built and the sounds that they create have become part of the landscape the sonic landscape of the saw films and chaz and i've been trying to convince chaz to work with spitfire audio (laughs) for many years you know and it all comes full circle. And I've That's been trying synergy. to convince him to jump into bed with these guys because Spitfire does pay a royalty. They don't just like mm. give you a bunch of money to use your samples. Every copy of the instrument that gets sold, a portion of that money goes back to the creator of the audio. So I've been trying to convince Chaz to jump into bed with these guys. Right. Finally, after years of trying to convince, and you know, he was sort of like, I don't want to let my children out into the world. Like the, you know. <laughs> but finally... This year, they just released uh, a title called Mercury, which is a virtual instrument from Spitfire Audio that contains many of the sounds of Chaz Smith's experimental metal instruments. None of the sounds were used in the Saw movies, but they're from the same source instruments. And that thing that you're seeing behind me across the room, that thing with the blue machined mm-hmm. stand that is very it is very similar to a water yeah. phone which is sort of like the original horror movie instrument you know yeah. um and i i love chaz's work and and i i am one of the few people who is lucky enough to actually have a couple of his instruments at my studio that because i had you know i licensed i basically gave him 10 percent of my fee from the first saw movie to allow me to use some of his sounds. And then when we made the second Saw movie, I used those sounds again, and I sent him another check for 10% of my now slightly larger fee. Mm -hmm. And I continued to do this through the franchise. And apparently, that's not what usually happens in Hollywood. 
Apparently, <laughs> someone like you know, someone like Chaz would go and do a recording session for Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and then Star Trek II: The Search for Spock comes out, and his sounds were on it, but he didn't get paid again. So he was so pleased that I didn't. And my friend Peter Freeman, that had introduced us, he had to convince Chaz, like, "Look, I've known Charlie for." 25 years he will absolutely not screw you over you can trust him to use these samples and to be fair and honest with you about how he's using them and so and i was just because that's how i am and Chaz was so pleased that we had this you know i mean it's almost 20 years now we've worked together in that fashion all he's ever done is give me a hard drive with a few sounds on it in 2003, which I have then used on all the Saw movies and continue to pay him. When he finally, a couple years ago, was moving from Los Angeles up to Northern California and preparing to transport his massive metal fabrication shop and his forklift and his giant mountain of scrap metal and all of his recording gear and his instruments and all this stuff, he said, look, there's that one instrument that I built as a commission that I never used, but it's the one that you love and the one, the, the samples of which you used on the Saw movies, I would consider selling it to you. Even though I do not make instruments for commissions and I do not sell my instruments, this is, there's one instrument that I didn't make for myself, but I still have it. And if you want, I would sell it to you because you managed to not screw me over for all these years. So... Get your checkbook and a pen with a lot of ink in it so that you can write a lot of zeros at the end of the number. Um, and he sold me the instrument called K-Lasta, which there are some videos online of me demonstrating that instrument. And as I was picking it up, he said, you know what? There's this other instrument called T.O. that I built. And now I, I, I wound up building a better one later. And T.O. never really worked the way I wanted it to. But it, I won't give it to you and I won't sell it to you but I'll park it at your house indefinitely. <laughs> so that's how I got a hold of T.O. Wow. was part of the Chaz Smith, the saga of Chaz Smith. But I recommend everybody who's interested in scary sounds and experimental tonalities to do a little Googling on Chaz Smith. Watch some of the YouTube videos. There's a really well-produced video that Hans Zimmer's team made because Chaz was involved in the, some of the sound, musical sound design for the movie Man of Steel, mm -hmm. including assembling an eight-player pedal steel guitar army to play on the Man of Steel score. Oh, wow. And so as that, when that movie was coming out, they, uh, Warner Brothers produced a video with Hans about Chaz Smith and his weird instruments. And it's fascinating, a fascinating dive into the mind of a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> well, here I was thinking it was a boring old water phone, and obviously it's in your <laughs> studio. It's something way, way more interesting with a backstory. Well, I have a boring water phone. I mean, that was like, you know, and, you know, the story behind water phones are that Richard Waters, who invented it, I mean, perfect name, right? His right. name is Richard it has Waters. water in it, and his name yeah. is Waters. And he made it to talk to whales. <laughs> he lived in Hawaii, and he built the water phone not to make scary noises for scary movies, but to, you can take it out, wait, you know, on the full moon, wade out into the bay, waist deep, lay the water phone in the water so that the bottom pan is in the water, but the rods are sticking out and then bow the rods and the sound will transmit through the ocean for miles. Whoa. And he would go out there in the bay, probably bare naked, you know, <laughs> and, and midnight on the full moon and would play the water phone 
and try to have conversations with whales. And so not only does it have water in it, but his name was Waters, yeah. and he played it in the water. So it's a, you know another, another wonderful piece of folklore about that scary sound that it creates. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> Too much information. No, no. <laughs> no you're just, great. I'm learning so just much Just enough information. Is there anything you're doing that we, we don't know about yet that we should know about? Or is it top secret? You know, uh, it's the secret is out already that Saw 10 is in production. Um, I know more about it than I am telling you, but that's how that's going to stay. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. But it, it will please the fans, and it is a return to certain elements of the Saw franchise, maybe, that we haven't seen so much in recent it's not Spiral Part 2, let's just put it okay. that way. Okay. Which there may be a Spiral Part 2, because that was actually relatively surprisingly good and successful. So I'm fine if they want to continue that side street that they've established with Chris Rock. and mm-hmm. Right. I, you know, that was a lot of fun to do, and that's a brilliant way to expand on the franchise. And I'm up for any and all Saw projects. But that one will be, I'll probably be starting on that around the, the new year. And, you know, that'll take me a few months to, to chew, to bite that one off. But supposedly yeah. it's slated for, to be in theaters uh, a year from now, next Halloween. Okay. I think it's okay. October 23rd, 2023, something like that. Good timing. So you have more mm-hmm. time than five weeks to work on the scores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I give myself more time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we are just wondering if you have any advice for anyone who is wanting to get into scoring, we have a lot of musicians who listen yep. to the podcast. And do you have any advice for anyone? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, I came f- into this sideways. I, you know, I came into both the scoring stuff and my work with Nine Inch Nails from being a whiz with the equipment and a whiz with samplers and computers and all that. But out of a love and an interest in sounds that no one had heard before. I wanted mm-hmm. to hear them for myself. And it turns out other people wanted to hear them too. And that helped me find a path to working with Trent and find a path into composing movie scores. And I shamefully neglected a conventional education in composition, orchestration, arrangement, that sort of thing. Uh, because I was a drummer. And mm-hmm. in theory, drummers don't have to study, you know, harmony or whatever until right. it was too late. By the time I started getting into wanting to create music and that was not just a drum beat, by that point, I was already out of college and it was, it was too late. So I'm not going to, I wouldn't advise that people do what I do did and ignore a conventional musical education and don't study orchestration <laughs> and harmony because I didn't, and look at I worked out fine. Hmm. That's that's not necessarily good advice. But what is good advice is to find the path that is perhaps less well trodden. And the musicians, composers, and artists that I like are doing something that I haven't heard 50 times before. You know, you go on YouTube and you hear... If you type in, you know, epic movie score, you'll eight trillion hits will come up. And often the amateur bedroom musician's version 
is often indistinguishable from the actual epic movie music that's in the epic movie. And that's Spitfire's fault. Exactly. <laughs> the, you know, because now everyone has the tools. Yeah. But if you if you're looking at uh, Music, for instance, like by Mark Corvin, who scored The Lighthouse, and you listen to what he did for The Lighthouse and some of his others. He just did that movie, I believe, uh, The Black Phone, that just came out recently. And he uses that apprehension engine and other unusual instruments, and he creates these unsettling musical soundscapes that are very markedly different from the everyday pile of stuff that you hear in like an Avengers movie or whatever. Now, not to say that there's, you know, Avengers movie music is great, whatever. But I, my credo was always that I didn't want to be playing catch up and looking at somebody else's taillights as they recede off into the distance and I'm trying to catch up. So what I've always tried to do is to find what, nobody else is doing or only a few people are doing or that some people have just touched on but didn't fully explore maybe and try to and of course that's just my natural interest is that one sound in that pink floyd song you know or right. that one theremin thing in that led zeppelin song i wasn't going to try to duplicate the sound of led zeppelin but that one thing yeah caught my interest and caught my eye and stuck with me all these years and it's was recently well stated in the corniest possible location, which is a Subaru commercial <laughs> featuring uh, handicapped dogs. And there was a phrase in this Subaru commercial in the voiceover where they say, and it's part of their marketing ploy, where they say, sometimes the roughest roads lead to the most interesting places. And, mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, I've said that a thousand times in interviews and in this type of conversation, but it always takes me 20 minutes to say what they said in one little sentence. And, <laughs> you know, and what I've often said in this type of discussion is I would prefer to be, instead of cruising along on a well-established road with guardrails and reflectors and well, you know, functioning headlights and everything, cruising along on a smooth path, I would rather be hacking my way through the bushes with a machete even if it means I'm only moving at one mile an hour, but I'm going down a path that nobody's gone down, hopefully. And when I get somewhere and I finally break out onto the edge of that cliff and I'm looking down over that valley, I might be the first person to look at that valley from that angle because I didn't take the road that had the exits and the guardrails and all that. I stumbled and bumbled my way through the bushes and might not always take me somewhere interesting but sometimes it does and that's not that wasn't like a game plan or a mission statement that was me kind of looking back at how the hell did I wind up here and when I look back at all the things that have happened it's usually me like not wanting to compete with people that are really good at what they do so yeah. I would wind up take you know going for something that nobody else is seeming to do and seeing if I can get that to work and that has led me to what measure whatever measure of success or whatever that i've had and so that's that's what worked for me was to find yeah grab a machete and start hacking through the bush <laughs> and you know yes you'll get some thorns hitting you in the face but you might 
find a cool viewpoint and you might be one of the only people to stand on the top of that cliff. Does that make any sense? Perfect sense. Perfect sense. Great wisdom to live by. (laughs) And we let you spout wisdom longer than they did at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Q&A. So that was our goal (laughs) was to give you more of a platform. I know everybody only got a little bit there. Well, you can't. It's hard to follow Danny Loner on the mic. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's true. I mean, he owns it. I just love how he finished up his one little paragraph where he's like, you know, he's talking about Nine Inch Nails is the only band I ever loved. I would, I wanted to go on the road with him as a guitar tech just so I could listen to that music every night. And then, you know, he talks yeah. for a while and then he says, and long story short, I've been riding his coattails ever since the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love the the end tacks onto anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking, <laughs> speaking of the end, we, is there any anything we missed, Jess? Um, I mean, I think there's more stuff I could touch on, but... I know it's it, getting. It it's could go forever. Our minds are are blown, and I just have to thank you again. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you ever want to come by again, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We would love to talk again. I um, love getting on the mic and talking philosophy about this stuff, and geeking out about equipment and gear and sound. Of course, it's, it's all fun course. to talk about. Definitely. It's been super illuminating. We learned things I don't know if anyone knew before. Maybe, but um, <laughs> yeah, can't thank you enough for coming on Nailed. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. It's been my pleasure. You know, you guys are obviously deep to the fan base and you like good music. And what more could we ask for? 